This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. I consider myself a renaissance man. And not in the cliche sense where you're good at a lot of different things. Gosh no, I'm really, really good at like two things. And neither of those has made me wealthy or even especially respected by my fellow man, quite frankly. I mean I'm a renaissance man in that I think I would have liked living in the renaissance. Overlooking, you know, general lack of hygiene and bubonic plagues. All that reawakened learning, all that thought, the praise of ideas and information, all that humanism. In a time where we've grown alarmingly suspicious of ideas, of information and intelligence, of facts. A time when those ideas, when those concepts were celebrated, really sounds okay to me. The Renaissance appreciated the classics. And what's amazing is those classics have remained every bit as applicable now as 400 years ago and even 3,000 years ago. The thing about the great ideas is they're simple, universal, applicable. What those ancient thinkers figured out about the world still matters to us ages later. Our math, art, and science all have their roots, and many modern practical applications in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. If you're a modern, and you are, and you hear philosophy, you probably think of some guy in sandals and shorts smoking weed on a university campus. Which happens, but for us, it's impossible to see it as anything but suspicious, as we feel what you study and what you do must ultimately be practical, and by practical, we mean making money which is ultimately a selfish pursuit. Philosophy is the quest of knowledge and the applications of that knowledge in one's own life. It asks the great questions of life like, what is life? What is good? But it also asks practical ones like, what makes the flowers bloom? Why do the seasons change? Why does the sun rise? All academic pursuits, science, math, language, history, rhetoric, all spring from philosophy. A philosopher, then, is a person who wonders, a person who thinks, a person who learns. In earlier episodes, I've referred to the trivium of learning. That's trivium with a capital T. I use this in application to uh, literary texts, but it works for all learning. There is... um, in the trivium, three stages. The grammar, sta- the grammar stage, when you encounter information. The logic, logic stage, when you ponder that information. And the rhetoric stage, where you use your ideas um, to report and argue on what you have learned. This is the essential process of learning. Whether it is figuring out how to improve your wrist shot or how to build a helicopter. If you, stutter, if you study not stutter, if you study philosophy, you will study big names like Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Locke, Nietzsche, 
Marx, Sartre, as well as dozens of religious philosophers, people who used this practice to connect their faith with knowledge, for better or for worse. St. Paul, Augustine of Hippo, and the rest used learning to justify faith. They used thought to justify belief. Highly problematic, and it led to some very bad things. But philosophy can be used in every walk of learning. You will also learn of the four main but overlapping branches of philosophy. Metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and logic. Ancient ideas that still have daily practicality. These are applied then to the philosophy of law, of feminism, of science, religion, history, language, arts, language arts, anything, anything else you could dream of. Philosophy is useful. You use it daily. The best of us use it hourly, never being satisfied with what we know. Instead, knowing, in the words of both Socrates and the punk band Operation Ivy, all I know is that I know nothing. Security and knowledge, certainty that you know what you need to know, is a doom, and one too many people are willing to deem upon themselves. Just ask anyone why they vote what they do, or how everything they feel worth knowing they knew before they were 12. Our single greatest failing as a people is, quote, knowing enough. These four main modern schools of philosophy can be subdivided, and all are influenced by some of the ancient schools. Today, I'm going to be talking about modern and practical Stoicism. I don't wish to ignore key later schools that aren't derived from the Greeks, like Taoism and Buddhism, or new twists like logical positivism, but I want to show the living practice of an ancient Greek school in our modern days still matters. Consider a couple of the other ancient schools. The sophists were a group of professional arguers. They could be asked, even hired, to provide an argument and then the next day just as easily argue the exact opposite side. This sounds like hypocrisy because it is. But we've given the name of the sophist to sophistication, which is only complementary. It means to be knowledgeable, advanced, reformed. The skeptics, who Socrates was most like, questioned everything, but as a means of seeking truth. Today, it is not a complimentary term. To be skeptical means to exclusively doubt, and usually just for the sake of doubting. The cynics saw life as something to be lived in virtue, free from want and possessions. Now, we use them to describe Eeyore. It's the philosophy of the cup half empty. I point this out to show that the schools still exist, but what they mean and what terms they've given to moderns are not true to the origins all the time. So let's consider Stoicism. And in a traditional sense, I am a poor Stoic. The three big names in Western philosophy, the great granddaddies of them all, are a teacher and his student, and then his student, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. 
None of these three was from a particular school, but they influenced all the schools. Socrates may be a fiction, or at least fictionalized. He's delivered to us by Plato. We don't know how much of this is Plato, how much of this is Socrates, and where the line is. Socrates seeks truth, he seeks pure knowledge, and he rejects satisfaction that he has any. In Plato, you get the concept of forms, the concept there's a perfect version of everything, that all things are just a reflection of this perfection. We suffer imperfections in the knowledge that that perfection exists. Platonism influenced Stoicism and both held a lot of sway in the doctrines of the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. It was one of the things that helped the Catholic Church keep its authority in that time, knowing people would believe the Platonic and Christian doctrines of a purer world beyond this. And Stoic doctrine basically ran alongside them because it meant people would be willing to accept suffering without complaint. Unlike sophistry and cynicism, Stoicism means mostly the same thing now as it did a thousand years ago. The world is what it is. You can fight it or accept it and then get on with your life. Making a stink does no good, so accept and move on. That's great. There's great advice to that. It's a good policy. Complaining and worrying do no good. Stoicism brings out the best in those of us willing to work and face life head on. But it has negative aspects as well. Self-denial, for one thing. You can still read the big names of early Stoicism. It's interesting how big this school was to the Romans, the superior sequel to the Greeks. The 2nd century uh, philosopher Epictetus has dialogues reminiscent of Plato's writings on Socrates. Epictetus was very popular in the later Christian empire because besides presenting the typical stiff upper lip advice, he also presents uh, moral expectations, and it's all very judgmental and very pure-minded. Self-denial is key, and it fits in well with what was preached from pulpits. Well, and what still is preached from pulpits. But for my money, when it comes to ancient Stoicism, you can't beat the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus was a generation younger than Epictetus, but what matters about him is, first and foremost, he was the emperor of Rome. Given the psychos that would follow him, history tends to paint him as the last good emperor, and that's a whitewash of kind, but he did rule a Rome of particular peace and particular prosperity. But he also allowed his son Commodus to co-rule with him, and that guy was a nutcase. Only a little bit embellished in the film Gladiator. Wow, a lot, but still. What we have in the meditations is a lovely gift of Stoicism in practice. Marcus never intended to publish, publish these meditations. It's essentially the most powerful man in the Western world journaling through his thoughts and giving himself pep talks. Much of it is in the second person, him saying, you should and you must. But, and so it reads like a stoic help, self-help book to us through the ages. But the you that he is referring to is himself. But it's not autobiographical. It's really him responding to some frustrations or anxiety and reminding himself of the path of his duty, of tradition, what he must do as emperor and as a good person. Uh, 
It's traditional stoicism, sure. He mostly tells himself to suck it up and accept also that the world is what it is and whatever happens, happens. But it also has um, his role as a person among people, a a universal goodness to pursue, things like that. Um, But what I really love about meditations is that it's, as I said, stoicism in practice. And Marcus appears to be a real person practicing it, despite the privilege of his station. I like the general concept of stoicism a lot because it involves living life despite suffering and stress. But what I don't like, as I'll come to presently, is repression of emotions, denial of passions. That's not natural. It's, well, repressive. There has to be room for emotion within our stoicism. Marcus says, quote, Your mind will take on the character of your most frequent thoughts. Souls are dyed by thought. It is important, yes, for you to think better, to think more positive, but that doesn't mean by denying what is going on. You dye those thoughts by aiming. You don't dye them by bleaching them of the emotions that go into them. Now, Back to Epictetus, one of the most practical things he introduces is the concept of the seven clear functions of the mind. These are, number one, choice to do and think right. Two, refusal of temptation. Three, yearning to be better. Four, repulsion of negativity, of bad influences, of what isn't true. Five, preparation for what lies ahead or whatever may happen. Six, purpose, our guiding principle and highest priority. And finally, assent, to be free of deception about what's inside and outside our control and to be ready to accept what isn't in our control. These are seven excellent concepts to use when functioning in life. Nice touchstones to keep coming back to and having guiding principles in your life is healthy. I've always felt. And notice how none of the advice is repression of emotion. Okay, Repulsion of negativity, number four. That's good, but it doesn't mean hide away from what you feel. If there has been a misreading of Stoicism, it's been in the implementation of the mid-century, mid-20th century British stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, what's all this then? And that sort of mentality. To be Stoic means to take anything happening to you and show no response to these people. Be tough. Don't react. We like our tough guys that way. No emotional maturity. No, thank you. I'll take narrow eyes and gravelly voice. Okay? We have far too much respect for the idea of non-reaction as stoicism. It's a kind of cowardice. Definitely a repression. Stoicism asks that we be realistic. We face what is in front of us. We respect that it's there. We challenge what we can challenge. But then we live with the rest. I actually really hate the cliche, it is what it is, but it suits the conclusion a Stoic has when faced with most things. The serenity prayer comes from Stoicism. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
only fight the things you can and that are worth it. But there's nothing in here about denying passions, about being an unemotional automaton in the face of life. I love the novel Dune. It's my favorite book by Frank Herbert, which is it is it is as much a work of philosophy on the human animal as it is a science fiction story. One of the tenets of the Bene Gesserit sisterhood is the litany against fear, a nice little parallel to the serenity prayer. And it goes like this, quote, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Like the serenity prayer, the litany does not involve denial, fighting against the stream, or the repression of emotions. What it entails is seeing something that exists, allowing that it exists, facing that existence head-on, not with denial, and in accepting that existence. Once you've accepted it, you are able to move on. Again, it is what it is. Being able to employ Stoicism into a modern life means honesty about self, about world, about experiences, not facing away. Stoicism has become trendy again lately, through though it never really went away. The only thing more significant than a stiff upper lip in the face of adversity is the ability of those in power to exploit Stoicism. Um, people who are stoic can be manipulated to put up with anything. The Middle Ages saw a Catholic Church promise a heavenly afterlife. Suffer now and with no complaints for a reward that'll follow eventually. Toil, then the grave, then paradise. We promise. It worked during the World Wars. Keep calm and carry on. And it worked during the COVID-19 pandemic. But here's the trick. It doesn't work. It encourages just getting over trauma, which is not natural, and causes the repressed, unaddressed trauma to affect us in much worse ways than if we'd accepted it and faced it head on. I've always found it rather telling that the term post-traumatic stress disorder didn't exist until the Vietnam War. Prior to that, we had shell shock, stress fatigue, nervous disposition, these are all judgmental, all commentaries on weakness. We want people to get over death, war, fire, infanticide, horror, abuse by just thinking about something else. This is not a solution. It's f lighting the wick that leads to a powder keg. Modern Stoics like Ryan Holiday are very good readers of the classics, and they've published some very popular self-help books that have sold really well despite not falling into this trend of having the F-word in their title somewhere. I'm going to question the wisdom of a man publishing stoic thought and self-help before he's 30 years old, but the guy saw a trend and exploited it. But he does sort of bring a lot of it together. It's a nice entry point. Modern Stoicism has more validity as long as it's more serenity prayer and litany against fear than it is keep calm and carry on. We must face and accept things. 
We must honor our feelings over things and allow those feelings to be. We must not invalidate those feelings. We must not compare our response to suffering to that of others. We must not put a value judgment on our own suffering compared to the suffering of others saying that, well, what do I have to complain about compared to others? We must allow the world to be what it is and how it is. I like Stoicism. Of the ancient philosophies, it's one of my favorites, behind humanism, logic, and aestheticism, but it's more daily practical than those three. That said, I am a very passionate person. I spent years feeling guilty for having big, loud emotions, not least because I grew up in a time and place where these responses were considered womanly, and that was bad in a boy or man. Big joy or big sadness are unacceptable, a sign of weakness. A real man had only two emotions, none at all or violent rage. It took me way too many years to see the wrong in that. Stoicism's value comes from compartmentalizing a complicated world, from its helping us deal with suffering and its entailing anxieties. There are things we can act on, things we can't. We honor our response to both, accept our reactions and entailing emotions, but then move past the things we can do nothing about. Because worry is like a rocking chair. To use Stoicism, to use any philosophy, is to apply it, apply, apply it in a way, in a good way, to modern life, but to reject anything that has not aged well. Deal with things as they come, but honor who you are and how that happens. To quote Hamlet, let be. Philosophy is a wonderful tool to use when approaching modern life. It uses the best aspects of rational thought, logic, and reason, the ability to find truth, to provide grounding and direction, morality without the judgment, and prescribed doctrines of religion. Not to mention religion's ultimate motives of control, segregation, judgment, and justification of behaviors, good or not. Everyone should practice philosophy. It encourages us to think rather than just to believe. It calls for us to, to assess truth before forming opinions, which is much needed today. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.